You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Good morning. I'm Greg Arthur, one of the pastors here. And um, now I haven't always been a pastor. For 32 years, I was in the sciences, working in water pollution and wastewater treatment. I was born a science nerd. When I was but a wee lad, I crossbred plants. I kept tarantulas. I collected fossils. I had a telescope and a microscope. I might have burned ants with a magnifying glass, but I'm not going to say. I've had aquariums since I was four. I still have three of them. The love of the natural world turned into more science degrees than Bill Nye the Science Guy has. Once I even used my degrees to build a backyard fish pond with a really nerdy denitrifying bioreactor. Yeah, that's right. And to this day, I still love fish and bugs and plants and fossils. I say all this because there's a perception that science and faith are at war with each other, that you cannot be a Bible-believing, gospel-breathing, saved-by-Christ-through-faith-alone guy and a scientist at the same time. And while combatants wage war, between science and faith, I can testify that there's, in reality, no war. That you can be a scientist and a believer in Jesus, the Son of God. This, and the implications of this, I hope to bring out from our passage today. All right, let's pray, would you? My Lord, thank you for this time. You said in your word, often, uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. My Lord, help me speak your words, and just your words. And help us to have ears to hear what you have to say to us. And minds that can comprehend what you mean. And then hearts that desire to obey what you say to do. My Lord, help us in all things. For you are our Lord, God, Savior. You are the reason why we're here. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, we've just started a series called The School of Faith. From chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, which is often referred to as the Faith Hall of Fame. Chapter 11 starts with a two-verse definition of what faith in God is, and then it goes through a list of the Hall of Famers, the Faith Hall of Famers. And for each, it says that by faith, Hall of Famer A did something that was out of the ordinary for sinners in this fallen world, something that God then acknowledged as faith in him. And from the beginning, God has always said that he credits faith as perfect righteousness, as if simply trusting is true what God says is in his eyes being perfect and sinless. He has said this in Genesis to Abraham, and he's repeated it multiple times in the Bible, and then he says this same thing in the book of Romans. It says, Abraham was fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to also perform. Therefore, It was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom faith, to whom it, faith, will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. The Bible says our faith in God to do what he promises is credited to us as righteousness. And the Bible says that this gift is what saves us. For it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, justified 
just means credited as righteous, as a gift by his grace. Salvation is his gift. Faith is how we receive his gift. And that in and in of itself is why the Faith Hall of Fame is worth packing up the kids and going for a visit. The Hebrews <clears throat> chapter 11 Faith Hall of Fame enshrines by name many of the legends of the Old Testament. Abel, Enoch, Abraham, Sarah, Noah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who, as it says later in the, in the chapter, by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put far, foreign armies to flight. By faith they did great things and are remembered for our sake now as we read about them in the Bible. It's uh, kind of like the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, which says as its mission to, quote, honor excellence within the game and make a connection between the generations of people who enjoy baseball. Let me ask you, at the, at the Hall of Fame, Cooperstown, who do you think uh, the Hall of Fame honors first? Who's the first person? Yeah? I haven't been there, but if you go online, Hank Aaron, true legend of the game, is first, if you go online. His Cooperstown plaque says he was the major's all-time Homer King. You know, uh, Barry Bonds. And uh, <laughs> plus, plus his name starts with two A's, so that makes him first alphabetically, yes? Now, myself, I would have picked Oakland's own Ricky Henderson first. Yeah, because he said one day, one fine day about himself, he said, now I am the greatest. So <clears throat> I would have picked him. Anyway. Who would be first in the Hebrews 11 list of the Faith Hall of Fame? Abraham, the father of Israel. David, the man after God's own heart. Abel, the first murdered man whose blood cried to God from the ground, who's first alphabetically and first in history. Who would be first? The first Faith Hall of Famer is the subject of today's talk. From Hebrews 11, verse 3 the first by faith Hall of Fame plaque says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what was seen was not made out of things that are visible. We are the first in the faith Hall of Fame. We? Why? What great thing did we do by faith that gets us enshrined not only in the faith Hall of Fame but on the first plaque? I've entitled this talk today, By Faith We Understand. The verse says that by faith, the great thing we did was understand that the universe was created by the word of God. In other words, by faith, we not only believed, but we internalized that belief into understanding that God made the universe by speaking it into being. This is a profound origin story. The Bible says it like this in another place. King David wrote, by the word of God, the Lord of the heavens, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts, let the earth fear the Lord, let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it was, he commanded, and it stood. 
One of the greatest of the Faith Hall of Famers, David, in the power of the Holy Spirit, wrote of the origin of all creation, of how God brought into existence everything seen out of the unseen void, and in the beginning, before time and space, God spoke and the universe was. In prehistory, before there was anyone there to see it, God commanded and the universe stood. This means the whole of creation, every molecule, every law of nature, all time and space came from God's mind who spoke and it was. Atoms and quarks, gravity and the speed of light, the sun and the moon and the stars, mathematics and physics and chemistry. And it means all life, extinct and living, single-celled or complex plant or animal, came from God's mind who spoke and it was. Every tree, every insect and bacterium, every fish and fish scale and fish scale protein, every kingdom and phylum and extinct bird, it all means also that all human life, the human mind and the human spirit, came from God's mind who commanded and there stood you and me and the seven billion alive today and the hundred billion who have died before us, each and every one made in the image of God, yet each with a unique spirit and unique DNA encoded from the start into each and every cell, each and every cell with 23 pairs of chromosomes, each and every 23rd pair, an XX or an XY. What complexity, huh? What elegance, what order. It's sheer mastery. Who is like this creator God that the Bible speaks of who spoke and it was, who commanded and it stood? Such mastery can only be understood by faith. For no one was there when God spoke it into being. Only God was there. This means David, who wrote this, couldn't understand it uh, could only understand what he wrote if God himself told him what it meant, spoke to him about it. And how he received that revelation, we don't know really. Was it through a thought that was spoken into his mind while he was in prayer? Was it from a prophet that came and visited him? What we know is, though, that David, by faith, understood as true what God spoke to him. And so we who believe in the same God, by that same faith, can understand as true what God speaks to us through what David wrote. That for by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. But there's more. Look at what the introduction to the book of Hebrews says. Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to us, spoke to our fathers by the prophets like David. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now God has spoken to us by his Son, through whom he also created the world, and who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And because he's the exact imprint of God's nature. It's no surprise that when he was here on earth walking around that he was seen by people creating by speaking in the same way. Eyewitnesses saw him speak over five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 people, the 5,000. They saw him speak and heal the sick and the afflicted. 
They saw him raise the dead, saying to one, arise, and to another, come forth. The scriptures reveal a really high view of God, of the creator God, of the Father and the Son, from whom his mind spoke and it was, not just in the unseen mists before time, but in human history, in front of eyewitnesses who wrote it down. For example, there was the time when Jesus was with the disciples sleeping on a boat in a storm that was so terrifying that they woke him up saying this, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. (laughs) And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who indeed? Who has authority to speak to the sea? Who has the power to calm a storm? And what did Jesus exactly do with all that power and authority? Uh, To answer that, let's ask ourselves what it would take to calm a storm. (laughs) Storms have to do with colliding air masses with different amounts of air pressure, heat, and water vapor. And air rushing from high to low pressure causes wind. And the earth's rotation causes wind to rotate. And the sun evaporates water into the warm air. And condensation from warm air rising into colder air causes rain. And falling rain causes a downdraft of blowing wind. And wind gusts cause the water to resonate into waves. And stopping all of that requires the impossible. The creation and deletion of molecules to even out air pressure. The creation and deletion of kinetic energy to dampen the waves and to stop the wind rotation. The creation and deletion of heat and water vapor to stop condensation and rainfall and downdraft. It takes nothing less than the suspension of the laws of nature. And yet that's what Jesus did. The Son of God spoke and it was. He commanded and it stood. One thing didn't lead to another, as things do in the material world here. Instead, things were one way, then he spoke, and in an instant, they were entirely different. He spoke, and the old reality with a storm was gone, and the new reality without a storm was here. And the disciples saw him do it. Although how it came about is entirely hidden from them, the creation and deletion of mass And energy is unobservable on this side of reality. So they can't explain the miracle, and they don't try. They only testify in a matter of a fact, a matter of fact way that the miracle happened, that he spoke and it was, that he commanded, and even the wind and the sea stood and obeyed him. (laughs) They can only testify of Jesus' power and authority to rule over the material world that the material world does not rule the material world. Jesus does. Or as the scriptures say, that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. This demonstration of his sovereign rule confirms us to us that our faith is not misplaced when by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. All right? Even more astonishing is how Jesus rules over the living world. The Bible says he healed the blind, the deaf, the mute, the sick, the lame, lepers, even the demon-possessed. You know, if the degree of difficulty from 1 to 10 
for ruling the material world is 10. It's 10,000 for ruling the living world because there are just complications to this. And Jesus did it incessantly. The disciples who were eyewitnesses often wrote of a typical day with Jesus, saying, for example, they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And he did it as was foretold by the prophets hundreds of years before. As an example, the prophet Isaiah said that we know Christ when he comes because the ears of the deaf will be unstopped and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. So here he is, the unstopper of ears and loosener of tongues. Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to himself, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And Jesus charged them to, and his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished, beyond measure, it says, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, hearing and speaking go hand in hand. If a person is born deaf or stricken deaf long ago, long enough ago, they often can't speak. So for Jesus to say the word, be opened, and to create hearing for the deaf and speech for the mute to plainly speak is just doubly astounding. Everyone who saw Jesus do it was astonished beyond all belief. And why not? This cannot happen. Here in the days of modern science, we know how impossible it is. By his word, the whole physical structure for hearing had to be instantly set in perfect working order. It's no simple thing. The eardrum vibrates as sound waves hit it. Three little bones amplify the eardrum vibration. The cochlea converts bone vibration into fluid waves inside of itself. Special cells produce fluids with the right ionic content. While the ion pumps, little ion pumps, maintain the, the fluid levels. Fluid waves bend 20,000 small hairs in the cochlea, which causes the opening of pores that releases electrolytes into nerve cells to produce electrochemical impulses which stimulate the millions of nerve cells connected in the right order all the way to the brain. It's ridiculous, yes? And on top of that, by his word, on top of that, the whole physical structure in his mind for language and speech also had to be instantly set into perfect working order. Hearing requires electrochemical impulses to be read and then matched to memory that is captured in the arrangement of, and I, this was a number I couldn't believe, of 100 billion neuron cells in our mind. And there are many trillions of synaptic connections. And this hearing then is processed into speech by firing electrochemical bursts to switch on specific neurons and synapses that encode thoughts and correspond to the movements of the lungs and the larynx and the tongue and the mouth, movements that take people many years to learn. Okay, so this is just a super simplified glimpse of the complexity of the hearing, of hearing and speech. Jesus would have had to create in an instant all of the missing or broken cells, all of their component proteins, 
and their DNA. Connect them in the right order. Train the lungs and the larynx and the mouth and the tongue how to speak. And most amazingly of all, arrange the neurons and their synapses to produce the memory that is necessary to hear a language that he could not hear and plainly speak a language he could not speak. Jesus did it in an instant by saying, be opened. He spoke and the impossible was done. He commanded and there stood a, dead, a deaf mute who could now hear and speak plainly. Okay, I don't know about you, but I'm one of the bystanders, astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak, and, and we might add, the blind see and the lame walk and the paralyzed move and the epileptic calm and the sick healthy and lepers whole and the demon possessed clothed and in their right mind. It's all astonishing. This physical creation of cells and synapses and memory and reason and movement and ability is simply astonishing. It means the living world does not rule the living world. Jesus rules the living world. The miracles are so astonishing that materialists who believe that the natural world is all there is reject the Bible out of hand for this reason. Uh, this is their red line. Thomas Jefferson famously cut the miracles out of his Bible with a razor. For even with eyewitness testimony, written down in a matter-of-fact way, it is still, by faith, we understand the universe was created by the Word of God. All right, most astonishing is how Jesus ruled over death. On three occasions, Jesus spoke to the dead. To a widow's dead son at a funeral, Jesus said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And he sat up and he began to speak. To, a dead daughter, to the dead daughter of Jairus, Jesus said, Child, arise. And it says her spirit returned and she got up immediately. And then there's this one. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they, removed, so they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. But I knew that you always hear me. Nevertheless, because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And out came the man who had died, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him. When Jesus called Lazarus out from the grave, saying, Lazarus, come forth, come out, Jesus spoke his will, and it was done. And the dead Lazarus, his decayed body and his perished mind was in that moment created back to life. You know, it's easy just to read this and say, wow, isn't that something? Yeah, wow, amazing. But that just doesn't do it justice. The de degree of difficulty of this is infinite. It's much more than simply just returning Lazarus' spirit to his body. That in, a, in and of itself would be an impossibility. Who has that kind of power? Only the ruler of the spiritual world could do the safekeeping and returning of Lazarus' spirit to his body. But it's more than that. 
Have you ever wondered what would happen if a stuffed animal came to life? With stump legs and no mouth, dot eyes and a big brainless head? It's just not good, you know, it's not good. The body has to be functioning in order to be animated to life. Lazarus was a spiritless, mindless, decayed body, one minute, and then Jesus called him, and his spirit returned not to a mindless, decayed body, but to a fully functioning human body, and not just any human body, but his own body, with his own mind, with his own DNA, and his own memories, all in restored and intact. You know, it's... it's Hard to sufficiently say just how impossible it is to undecay a body and unperish a mind. For the component cells are ridiculously complicated. This is just a, this is a diagram of one neuron cell in your mind, in your brain. And death causes the almost immediate disintegration of the cell. Cell walls break apart. The mitochondria quit storing energy. Bacteria, fungus, and parasites, and larvae consume the cell contents, breaking it down into simple compounds. Fluids drain. The lack of oxygen starts the breakdown of DNA. And this happens in all of the 30-plus trillion cells in the human body. With cell breakdown comes the loss of structure and the loss of function, the loss of memory, the loss of the living self. All of this has to be created. That's what Jesus did. He speaks, and it was. The miracle was so astonishing that the crowds came, it says, quote, to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, and those, quote, who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him, which brought about even greater crowds. And they were so afraid that this caused the earthly authorities to panic. They sought to kill Lazarus now because on account of him, it says, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Okay, only the sheer impossibility of that miracle explains their fear. Because, why are they afraid? Because it demonstrates the absolute power and authority Jesus has to rule. Not just over this material world and not just over the living world, but over the spiritual world and death itself. It says in the scriptures, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then it also says, in the beginning was the word, meaning Jesus, Christ, the Son of God. And the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. All right. So, therefore, we have every reason to, by faith in Christ, understand that the whole universe was created by the Word of God. I ask you, are you convinced? All right. What should we make of all of this? What does faith in a God who speaks creation into existence matter so much? Why does it matter so much? And perhaps the best answer I've found to this question was from Stephen Meyer, a philosopher of science, who said, the heart cannot exalt in what the mind rejects. And yet, much of the scientific community flat out rejects not just God as creator, but even his existence. For example, here's some quotes. Victor Stinger, 
a uh, particle physicist said, science is not going to change its commitment to the truth. We can only hope religion changes its commitment to nonsense. Stephen Hawking, a mathematician, said, one cannot prove that God doesn't exist, but science makes God unnecessary. And Richard, yeah, ooh, be careful there, Mr. (laughs) Hawking. And Richard Dawkins, an evolutionary biologist, said, faith is one of the world's great evils, comparable to the smallpox virus, but harder to eradicate. (laughs) Whoa. And this thinking, this thinking has sway over nearly every encounter with science and technology in this culture. In every secular high school, in every college, in every PBS documentary, in every Wikipedia page, it's full court press all day and every day from the world. This matters so much that because for science reasons, the mind rejects, if for science reasons, the mind rejects God as creator, then the heart cannot exult in the God of creation. And the, and the natural world no longer is a source of his praise. And the universe no longer displays his glory. And the astonishing, fear-inducing nature of the creation no longer inspires in us reverence for God that he deserves. We cannot rightly relate to the Lord without understanding by faith that the universe was created by the word of God, that he spoke and it was, he commanded and it stood. But if we do have this understanding by faith, it would affect us. A lot of ways. We would find order in the creation, for as it says in scriptures, God is not a God of disorder, but of order. And we would seek pleasure in the creation for everything created, as it says in scriptures, everything created by God is good. And we would see God's glory and how interesting the creation is, and we would gain a fear and a reverence for the the God who made everything that was made. All right, I'm going to look at the last two. First, by faith, the creation is interesting. Now, the creation is inherently interesting to anybody, with or without faith. Every kid loves pill bugs, yes? Hardened criminals dream about the stars. Cavemen drew pictures of mastodons. Meteorologists chase tornadoes. I have a fossil collection, honestly. I think scientists are generally motivated by a very pure love of the natural world. It's all endlessly interesting. However, for those of us who by faith understand that the universe was created by the word of God, the creation is doubly interesting because everything found in it, in the creation, reveals something about the creator. Yes, the creation is beautiful. It is excellent. It deeply moves us. But ultimately... The creation is a reflection of the creator who is more beautiful, more excellent, more deeply moving to our souls. And that's why the creation is truly interesting because ultimately it is the Lord God himself that we are in love with. Okay, once at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, Lori and I were looking at a tank of little blenny fish and we were both struck while looking at them of the greatness of God And I'm not ashamed to say that we both wept a little bit. I'm not sure who said what, but we were amazed why God would waste such beauty on such an insignificant little creature hidden for eons in the vast depths of the sea. 
And as we pondered that, we both noticed, I think about at the same time, that each little blenny had its own unique face. (laughs) And then we wept at the riches of his glory and the greatness of his love that even one tiny blenny fish can't help but declare God's glory. The scriptures say that the angels in heaven sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the point, church, is this. Do not let the world steal away his glory in creation and lessen our love of God. Okay, next one also. The creation is astonishing, fear-inducing. Because the power and authority it takes to create the universe is just incomprehensible to us. Jesus' miracles were demonstrations of his power and his authority. They confirmed what the scriptures say, that he is king forever. But his miracles were also a sign that the whole created order is his. That he spoke and the universe was. That he commanded and the universe stood. This means that every little discoverable bit of the creation from one tiny little blenny fish to a far distant galaxy stands as a testament to the absolute power and authority the Lord God in Christ has to rule the universe and everything in it, including us. And it's his all-powerful, almighty, unchallenged, uncomprehensible, sovereign rule of all of creation that we fearfully understand by faith. For after Jesus Calmed the storm, the disciples, quote, became very much afraid. After he, after he healed the people, those there, quote, were filled with fear. After he raised Lazarus from the dead, the chief priest plotted to put to death Lazarus. They were afraid of storms and illness and governments, but after Jesus demonstrated his power and authority, they were afraid of him. And we who by faith understand that the creation testifies of his incomprehensible power and authority should increase in our fear and reverence for him who is worthy to be praised. Here's what it says in the Psalms. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty And on your wondrous works, I will meditate. All right, so church, here's the point. Let's refuse to let the world diminish the greatness of God in creation. And lessen our fearful and reverent worship of God who deserves that. Okay, there's one more miracle. The resurrection, the most astonishing of all. Here's what Paul wrote about it. For I, Paul, delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 at one time. And he goes on. In human history, in front of eyewitnesses, Jesus was resurrected from the grave, and he was still himself, but with a new imperishable body that cannot die. You know, there's no way to scientifically understand that. But he did it. 
And he thereby demonstrated once and for all that he is king over everything. That he has power and authority to remake all things. To reverse the curse of sin. To vanquish death forever. To make a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness reigns forever. And he will raise us up just as he was raised up as well. He'll raise us up who by faith understand that the universe was created by the word of God. For by that same faith, we understand that he will again create the universe by his word. And he has spoken it, and so it will be. Amen. Thank you. Would you pray with me, please? My Lord, thank you so much. Um, It's beyond us with our words to say just how um, amazing you are the wondrousness of your works. My Lord Jesus, help us to not lose sight of how great you are and to not lose sight of your glorious, of your glory in the creation. My Lord, help us to just hold on to that. Help us fight off the world that wants to take away your glory and your greatness and let us thereby love you and worship you forever. In your name we pray, amen.